Good morning. Last week, um, David took us through the story of David and Goliath. That's one of the most famous stories in all of the Old Testament. He told us a little of the details, painted some of the picture there, so we could really get a feel for what was, was going on, really see and feel what was happening there. Well, I would like this morning to revisit that story, but maybe from a slightly different angle. I would like to go back and look at what David was feeling when he arrived at that Israelite camp, when he realized he was going to confront Goliath, when he was standing out there in front of Goliath, but especially what he felt at the end of this counter, after it was all, after it was all over. First Samuel tells us all the stories of David's life, the events, the circumstances. But if you really want to know what David felt, what was in his heart, what he was thinking, you've got to turn to the Psalms. The Psalms is where David opens up his heart and explains to us what he's thinking and feeling and afraid of and hoping for. From a, a long time ago, uh, from antiquity, Psalm 27 has been associated with David's encounter with Goliath. This is a tradition that goes back to the Midrash, which is an ancient commentary on the Talmud, which is an ancient commentary on the Old Testament from before Jesus' time. So it's a very old tradition. Now, we don't know for sure that's what David is talking about. He doesn't tell us explicitly. But that tradition, like I said, is very old and very strong. So I'd like to look at Psalm 27 with that in mind. But before we go back to Psalm 27, I'd like to go back to David arriving at the Israelite camp, bringing provisions to his big brothers, who, who were probably his personal heroes who had gone off to war to fight the Philistines, and he's bringing them some food. He arrives at that camp. Can you imagine what he must have felt? The disillusionment, the confusion when he got there at that camp, and here was the whole Israelite army, including his big brothers, all cowering in fear of this, this Philistine warrior. And that must have been hard for him to deal with. You know, here were the heroes of Israel, the people whose exploits and bravery he'd heard about and they'd sung songs about, and as a young boy wanted to be like these guys, the heroes of the nation. And here they are paralyzed in confusion. In fear. And then David hears what this Philistine has been saying to them, how he has been cursing them in the name of God and speaking out against the true God. And David's disillusionment and disappointment turned to anger. And he says, Somebody's got to do something here. Now, I don't think at this time David was thinking of himself doing anything. I mean, that's not his job, that's the professionals, these guys. These warriors, these heroes of Israel, surely somebody would do something. And then his big brother comes up to him and tells him to shut up. He says, who do you think you are? What are you doing here anyway? And that must have hurt. You see, David's disillusionment confronted these soldiers with their own paralyzing fear and confusion. They didn't like it. So I think in anger, frustration maybe, David says, somebody's got to do something. I'll do something if nobody else will. And they take him up on this challenge. Can you imagine the flood of confusion and fear that must have hit David right about then? I mean, these are the warriors. These are the, the men of renown of Israel. And they're going to let a shepherd boy fight for them? I'm sure he must have cried out to God, God, what's going on here? 
This isn't my job. This isn't fair. This is their job. What am I supposed to do? It must have been frightening and disillusioning. But you say, well, David knew God would take care of him. God had taken care of him when he was out in the field facing lions and bears. So he knew God would protect him. But think about that. Think about your own life. When you've faced into something that's frightening, something that's very hard or scary in your life, and you've stepped out in fear and trepidation, and God has been there for you, and it came out okay, and He was able to use you, and you feel wonderful. Thank you, God. But what happens the next time that you face a hard situation? And I know for myself that my first response is fear and resentment. Sure, God was faithful back then, but somehow that seems long ago and far away. This is now. In my heart, I cry out, God, this isn't fair. I hate this, God. I don't know what to do. I don't want to deal with this. Doggone it. Don't make me. You see, God's faithfulness in delivering victories rarely seems to stop us from crying out in complaint the next time we face that hard thing to do. But David faces into his fears. He doesn't let his dread stop him. He steps out, going out there to face Goliath, and he sees God's faithfulness. He sees God completely rout that huge Philistine army that Goliath was leading. Well, now let's turn to Psalm 27 and see what David felt at that point. See what went through his mind and his heart. Let me just read the first three verses to start with. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh. Remember Goliath told him he was going to feed his flesh to the birds. When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. I'm sure in his mind's eye he saw that terrible giant stumbling to his knees with a stone embedded in his forehead, falling flat on his face. He says, though an army besiege me, he's thinking of that huge Philistine force, uh, far larger, far better equipped than the Israelite army. Though an army besiege me, even then my heart will not fear. Though war break out suddenly against me, even then will I be confident. That word confident uh, doesn't imply self-confidence. It's the word for trust or faith. Even then I will trust God. In the worst possible imaginable circumstance, I will trust God. Do you, see, do you, do you hear the exhilaration in David's voice? He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's excited. He is filled with the, 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 the delight, the thrill of victory. He says, the Lord is my light. Light is the natural figure of speech for everything that is good and positive from truth and goodness, joy, life itself. See, light makes us feel safe. Even in our culture, our society, where there isn't much darkness, we've got light everywhere, we've got street lights and headlights my daughter even has little lights on her tennis shoes. When she walks, they flash. But even in our society where the dark isn't all that dark, still, when you walk into a room, you turn on a light. When you go camping or hunting, you build a fire. 
Because light makes us feel safe, secure. It, it keeps the darkness at bay because darkness is dangerous. It's threatening. We don't know how to deal with it. But light is, is, is comforting and secure. But you notice what David said. He doesn't say, the Lord provides light. He gives me light. He says, the Lord is my light. The Lord Himself, His presence is the source of that security, that comfort in David's life. doesn't matter what else and where else He is. As long as the Lord's there, the light is there. And He has nothing to be afraid of. Charles Spurgeon said, The powers of darkness are not to be feared, because the Lord, our light, destroys them like a lamp destroys a shadow. And then David says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. That word stronghold means safe place. The Lord is my safe place. The safe place of my life. Now that can be a stronghold, a fortress, or a cave, or perhaps even laying in my bed with the covers pulled over my head. That's the place that I'm safe. The place where I feel safe. And again, it doesn't matter where I am, what I'm facing, what I'm dealing with. There is a safe place. Again, it's not that God provides a safe place. He is my safe place. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm facing. David was in a safe place because God was with him. Even as he stood out in that field alone without a stitch of armor, facing that terrible giant fact is, there was no safer place on earth for David at that time. Now, this doesn't mean Goliath could not have hurt him or even killed him. But that's just his body. David, the inner man, was absolutely, entirely safe. Like Martin Luther said, the body they may kill, but they can't touch me. And the fact is, they can't even touch my body Unless God, who is my light, who is my deliverer, who is my safe place, allows it. No one has any power over me. Any who oppose me, my, the enemies of our faith and the enemies of our, of, our, of our person, have no power. Because God is not on their side. They are not on God's side. Their position is essentially weak, regardless of how, how powerful, how influential they seem. Paul said in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? What can mere man do to me? But again, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes they look so powerful. It looks so frightening. A guy by the name of Richard Young, back in the 1600s, said, Some feel a thousand deaths, fearing only one. You know, so often that thing that we dread torments us. It keeps us awake at night. It paralyzes us and confuses us. David knew that dread. In fact, that's the word he uses the second time he, he says, whom shall I fear? It's whom shall I dread? Dread is the feeling we get when we don't want to deal with something or we don't know how we're supposed to deal with it or what to do. We feel dread. But again, David faced into that, reminding himself of who God is. God is his light and his deliverer, his safe place. And as a result, 
David saw the, the faithfulness of his God and felt the exhilaration of success, of victory. Well, let me ask you, what is it in your life that you dread? What is filling you with anxiety, maybe even keeping you up at night? Is that conversation with that guy at work? Is it sharing the gospel with someone that God has laid on your heart? Maybe it's talking, uh, working through something with that, that teenage son or daughter who just seems so volatile. Perhaps it, it's uh, talking to someone, maybe your spouse, about how they have sinned against you. Maybe it's uh, making a commitment to that ministry that God has, has put in front of you or being faithful to God with your money and your giving, taking that financial risk of doing what your heart knows you should be doing. Or maybe it's, it, it's dealing with the influences, the, the, the forces in our society that are, seem so powerful, so un, undefeatable, that are drawing our society deeper and deeper into darkness and confusion. Whatever it is that you dread, face into it, reminding yourself who God is. He is your light. He is your deliverer. He is your safe place. And then walk straight into that situation without a stitch of armor, holding only a sling and a few rocks. And you will experience that same exhilaration that David felt when he saw the faithfulness of God. And you will be brought to worship Him, to cry out, Whom shall I fear? God is my safe place. He is my light. He is my deliverer. You'll experience the victory. Well, let's go on to see uh, where David goes from here. You know, we might expect David to say at this point, this is great. This is life. You know, there is nothing better to, to experience this kind of victory, to be bold for God like this. This is what it's all about. But David doesn't say that. In fact, that the experience of victory seems to just show David that this isn't what it's all about. That there is something more. He experiences the thrill of victory, and that's wonderful. But as wonderful as that is, it's not enough. There is something more. But what more is there? Well, let's see what David discovers. Verse 4 he says... This one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. They said, this is what I'm going after in life. This is the one thing that it's all about, to look into God's face. The word he uses there for seek, right at the beginning of that verse, it means to try to acquire, to pursue, to go after, to aim at. David's saying, this is the one thing that I'm going to try to acquire, that I'm going to go after in life, that I'm going to aim at in life, that I'm going to focus on. See God's face. See, there's all kinds of other things we can seek in life. And quite honestly, the key to success in any of them is to stay focused. It's the businessman who focuses all his energy on that business that is a very successful businessman. I 
like to listen to talk radio. One guy I sometimes listen to on the way home from work is Bruce Williams. And he's uh, advising people, counseling people on how to be successful in business. But I've heard him say on more than one occasion to somebody who was, was saying how their marriage was getting in the way of their business success, he said, well, you can always get another wife. That's true. You know, if you want to be successful, if wealth is your goal, if your goal is the prestige that comes from business success, don't let anything get in your way. Stay focused. Don't let anything interfere with that goal and you can be successful. But that's not what life is about. Or if your goal is to make everyone around you like you, or at least not be mad at you, well, then you can do that if you stay focused, if you don't let anything stand in the way. Compromise your own feelings. Don't ever contradict the, the unhealthy attitudes and behavior that are going on around you and your family or, or at work. Work yourself sick trying to meet all of their expectations. And if you can't stay focused and put all of your energy and don't let anything get in the way, you can be successful. But again, that isn't what life is about. David has found the unum necessarium, the one thing that life is about, the one thing that is necessary. See, in the New Testament, when Martha was scurrying around trying to meet what she thought were all of Jesus' expectations, and her sister Mary wasn't cooperating, she complains, Martha complains to Jesus, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen that better thing, and it will not be taken from her. Well, what had Mary chosen? To sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to Him, to look at Him, and to see what He was like, to listen to what He felt, to listen to what He thought, to simply be with Him. And you see David saying, that's what I'm going to go after. That's what I'm going to target my life. That's what I'm going to seek and put my energy into. No matter how hard that is. No matter how mysterious at times that seems. No matter how unsettling it is. And it is terribly unsettling as we'll see a little bit later. But David says, that is going to be what I focus on. What I aim at. What I go after. It says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's literally that I may dwell in the dwelling of the Lord forever. We might say that I might live in the living room of the Lord forever. That is to be where God is all the time. So we can be watching Him all the time. David wants to see what God does, to, to hear what God says and how He feels and how He responds to people and, and situations. David wants to be wherever God is all the time because David wants to know everything there is to know about God. Because he wants to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Now, David isn't thinking about hanging out at the temple in Jerusalem all the time. And because, first of all, Jerusalem was still a Jebusite city at this point. The temple wasn't even built till long after David was dead and gone. Now, David's talking about hanging out in the heavenly temple, where God is. 
David could already see that in his mind's eye. He had been there in his heart. In fact, the plans that David was even then beginning to formulate for the earthly temple that his son Solomon would build are just a reflection, a representation of that heavenly temple where God is. David wants to be where God is so that he can gaze on the beauty of the Lord. That word gaze is a good one. It means to look at, to really look at, to look deeply at the beauty of the Lord. But that word uh, beauty can be misleading. You see, what David is doing, he doesn't want to look at this beautiful object, this the beautiful mountain or a beautiful picture. It's a different kind of beauty that he's looking at. In fact, it could be better translated to gaze at the pleasantness of the Lord. It's a far more relational term than, than some kind of uh, impersonal beauty. David wants to, to, to look at the nature, the character of God, to, to gaze at His goodness, His kindness, His thoughtfulness, His gentleness, His loveliness. He wants to gaze at just what a wonderful, delightful person God is. How pleasant He is to be around. Now, we don't often think of God like that. We think of God as powerful and terrible and unsettling. And He is all those things. He is awesome. He is terrifying. But when we look deeply into His eyes, we also see His pleasantness. David uses a second word for seek there in verse 4, the last line of it. It's different than the first time he says seek. The first word for seek meant to aim after, pursue, to go after. This word means to contemplate, to consider deeply, to reflect on, to look at intently, like a lover looks deeply into the eyes of his beloved. You see, that's what David wants to do with God. He wants to be love-struck with God. He wants to be filled with just the wonder of God, the, the, the sheer delight of looking into his eyes. This is the essence of worship. This is the essence of life. Well, what David does from here uh, in verse 5 is he, his mind is drawn back to the circumstances in which he made this realization, in, in which he saw the glimpse of God's goodness and His love, His, his loveliness. So he says there in verse 5, For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. David remembers that day of trouble. That day when he was so afraid, when he faced Goliath, even as he was facing Goliath, he was sheltered in the tent of God, in the inner tent, in the safest place in the tent. You see, the tent of God is not where we run to to get away from our troubles. It's where we are sheltered in the midst of those troubles. David says very clearly in these verses that even as he was sheltered in the tent of God, he was surrounded by his enemies. But it was as if in the middle of the battle with, with the fighting going on all around him, God reached down, 
picked him up, lifted his head above his enemies where it couldn't be struck, set him on a rock where he was totally safe, even while the battle continued to rage. I can remember a movie I saw when I was a little kid. It had a real impact on me emotionally. In this movie, there was a young boy who was being attacked by a herd of wild pigs. And his back was to the wall, and there was no place he could run. And he was crying, and the boars were coming in and slashing at his legs with his tusks, and I was terrified. And then suddenly, as if out of nowhere, from on top of the rock behind him, his father's hand reaches down, grabs the back of his jacket, and pulls him to safety. And man, I can still feel the flood of relief well, where I, just watching the movie, I suddenly felt safe. See, again, God is our safe place in the midst of whatever we're facing, whatever we're dealing with. Then in verse 6, the rest of verse 6, we see David's response. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I'll worship Him. I'll praise Him. Sacrifice here is David's vehicle, his way of expressing his love and gratitude to God. This isn't a quid pro quo, a paying God back, or it's not even a religious exercise. He's doing it because he's supposed to do it. That's what religious people do. Now, this is an honest expression of a mutually giving relationship. David wants to express his love and his gratitude concretely. You see, in most societies of the world, and in fact, in, this, in, in the culture of David's age, love Gratitude are always, always expressed concretely. There's a compelling desire to do for the one that has done for you. There's a constant looking for an opportunity to give or to do some favor and give some gift to somehow love concretely, somehow show gratitude concretely. And I wish that were more true of our culture. Because it gives such a reality to relationships, a depth to relationships, even a delight to relationships as that love is seen and undeniable as we give to each other and express that love concretely. And let me tell you that as you learn to express your gratitude and your love concretely to God, not as a religious obligation, not trying to pay Him back or earn something from Him, but because you love Him and are grateful as you express that concretely with your money and your time and your willingness to love those whom He loves, it will open up to you a whole new dimension and depth and delight in your relationship with Him. Again, this isn't an attempt to pay back. This isn't... uh, some way of of earning God's love. No, it's the loving expression, the loving response to God's love already given. There is absolutely no way David could earn God's love. There's no way we can deserve it. We are, in fact, unworthy of it. It's impossible for us to buy it. Remember I said a while back that Uh, Seeking God's face is terribly unsettling. It's terribly hard. 
Because when we seek God's face and we see His face and see Him as He is, we begin to see ourselves as we are. And we're very different. You know, the thing that we were created for, to see God's face, also becomes the thing that we dread. Because as we begin to see the one who is our light, that light shines on our sinfulness, on our spiritual and psychological deformities. Quite honestly, to some degree, that experience is the confirmation that you're dealing with the true God, the holy God who is unlike us in His love and His sinlessness. And it's only as we are pursuing this this figment of our imagination that we call God that we can rest comfortably in our sins. The true God, the God of Scripture, disturbs us. And I think that's exactly why David goes on to cry out what he does in the next couple of verses. Verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says, if you seek His face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. See, David realizes that you can't earn, you can't deserve God's mercy. It's grace. Totally undeserved. There's nothing he can do to get it, and that's terribly unsettling. And so he calls out there in verse 9, he says the same thing in about four different ways. He says, do not hide your face from me. And he says, don't turn me away in anger. It can also be translated, don't pull away from me in anger. And he says, he uses two words that mean abandon. One of them is translated reject, the other forsake. But they both mean the exact same thing. To leave to walk away from, to abandon. You see, when we see how unlike God we really are, how selfish and petty and rude and unloving we are compared to His goodness and His love, then we realize that the only just thing, the appropriate thing would be for God to withdraw, for Him to turn away in revulsion, for Him to simply turn and walk away. But he doesn't. He does exactly the opposite. He calls us to himself. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. You see, we begin by wanting to see his face. We begin by pursuing his face. But in doing that, we're confronted with some very difficult things about ourselves. But right in the middle, where David is appealing to God not to turn away, not to abandon him, we have one of the greatest surprises of this psalm. Verse 8. Now, this is a very difficult construction in the Hebrew. But what it really says, and this is footnoted for you, by the way, in the NIV, under the little X there. But what it really says is, To you, my heart, he said, Seek my face. You see, as David begins to hunger for God, he realizes that that was God's initiative. 
when David looks at his own heart and discovers that longing for God, he realizes it's God that put it there in the first place. And so he speaks to his heart and he said, says, heart, God has told you to seek his face. This isn't something that, 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 that David dreamed up. This isn't some desire that he has acquired that God is resistant to. No, this is a desire that God put there because this is God's desire as well. God has put a longing and a yearning in each of our hearts that nothing else can satisfy. There can be other things that are enjoyable, that can distract us for a moment, that can fill it for, for an instant, but nothing can ultimately fill it. Only God can. Not even the victory over Goliath was able to satisfy that longing. In fact, David realizes that everything he'd been through up to this point, the, the fear in facing the Goliath, the disillusionment, the, the thrill of the victory over Goliath, were all just parts, just pieces of God revealing that deeper, that most primal message that He has written on our heart. Seek His face. See, we start out again by seeking His help in our times of trouble. Seeking His power to, to give order to our lives. But we end up seeking Him. Realizing that only looking into His face can satisfy and God is willing to be known. He lets us see a little bit of Him at a time. Not too fast, not too much, because we couldn't take it. We couldn't deal with it. But His desire is always to reveal more. This is the miracle of grace. That because of what Jesus Christ has done in cleansing our unrighteousness on the cross, we can do what we were created to do, what our hearts most profoundly long to do, and that is to see God's face, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But ultimately, finally we discover that even though God is gracious and He gives us glimpses of Himself as we seek His protection, as we seek His provision, as we seek for the things that He can do in our lives and do for us, God is good. He gives us glimpses of who He is. But ultimately, we discover that unless we make the movement, the shift from seeking these other things from God to seeking God in and of itself, to seeking His face as an end in itself, then all of these other things never finally satisfy. We find ourselves frustrated and disillusioned. God has designed it so. God causes it to be so. He continually frustrates us and disillusions us. He disappoints us because He wants us to see that only in seeking Him can our heart find satisfaction. Now that doesn't mean we don't seek His provision, His protection, His work in our lives to, to, to use us to minister to others. These are all good things. And we continue to seek them from Him. But again, we make the shift to seeking Him as well. To seeking His face in and of itself. Jeremiah 29.13, God said, And you will seek Me, and you will find Me, when you seek Me with all your heart. Blessed are the pure, that is the focused in heart, for they shall see God.
Again, let me ask you, have you caught glimpses of your God as He has been at work in your life? Have you experienced the the deep satisfaction of seeing Him at work, of seeing Him use you to minister to others, seeing Him provide for you? But the thrill is gone. Even seeking these other things don't seem to satisfy. It's not enough. You will start to wonder, is this Christianity stuff all I had hoped it would be? It just doesn't seem worth the effort. Well, you're right. It's not. But listen to your heart. He has told it. Seek His face. That is what you really long for. And He's willing to be found when you seek Him with your whole heart. He hasn't moved away. He hasn't turned away. He has not abandoned you. Look at verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. You know, for most of us, there is no more committed, no more loyal relationship than our commitment to our children. I can't think of a more abhorrent thought than for me to forsake, abandon my daughters, though I know uh, through my own behavior that I'm capable of even that. And some of you may have been abandoned, emotionally or physically abandoned by your parents, even abused by your parents. But even if this most basic and fundamental human relationship should fail, you have a father who never will. He will never fail you. His love goes far beyond the most devoted parent. When David, uh, who, by the way, uh, uh, many speculate was unwanted and neglected by his parents, uh, back in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel asked to see all of the sons of Jesse, David wasn't allowed to be there. But anyway, when David says, even then, God will receive me. He uses a word that means to gather up. Even then, God will gather me up. Like a father gathering up his child onto his lap, picking that child up to, to comfort, to care for, to love. See, that's how God responds to you. That's a picture of His love. I'm uh, just about out of time, so let me tell you real briefly about the next couple of verses and then let you go so you can think about these things. Verse 11, 12. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors, literally my watchers. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. When David asked God to teach him his ways, to lead him on straight, level paths, what this is is an expression of his desire to be like this God who has loved him so beautifully. You see, after we see God and after we realize the depth of His grace and continuing to reveal Himself to us in spite of our unworthiness, we become filled with a passion to be like Him. That's where the true hunger and thirst for righteousness come from. We see God and we want desperately to be like Him. He is so attractive. But David also says that there are people all around us who want to see us fail. They want to see us act unrighteously and unlovingly and unlovely. 
so that they can feel justified in their sinfulness. David calls these people watchers because they're watching us, looking to find fault. And if they can't find fault, they will falsely accuse. They will twist the the, the truth a little bit, just enough to make us look unrighteous and unloving. Because they mistakenly believe that our failure, our faults, will vindicate their sinfulness and their wickedness. They reason, if these people, who are supposed to be the best, aren't any better than that, they're no better than I am, so I must be good enough. But you see, they dare not look at the true and living God. It's His righteousness that is the standard. May we be good enough reflections, pictures of His love and His goodness to break through their deceitful defenses. Well, then David ends with verses 13 and 14. He says, I would have despaired if I didn't believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. David begins verse 13 with an incomplete thought. He says literally, If I didn't believe I could ever see God and all His goodness in this life, he doesn't even finish his sentence. And he's saying, If I didn't believe I could ever see God in all His goodness in this life, that's just too horrible to contemplate. He just can't finish that sentence. There would be nothing to live for. There would be no point in it all. David just is overwhelmed by that thought. And it leads him to say to you and to me personally and individually, wait for the Lord. As I was talking about this passage with David Roper, he pointed out that this in the Hebrew is very emphatically second person singular, like a big finger coming out of the page saying, you wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. No matter what scary thing you're facing, No matter what you dread, wait for the Lord. Remind yourself that He is your light. He is your deliverer. He is your safe place. And He will give you the victory. Enjoy it. Thrill in it. Let it lead you to worship. But don't settle for it. Wait for the Lord. Hold out to see His face. To to gaze at the pleasantness of the Lord. To see His goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do so often face things in our lives that scare us. In our relationships especially. In our marriages. In our attempts to, to parent in our relationships with friends at work, at school, in the different environments we find ourselves. And it is so hard to remember that you are our safe place. You are our light and our deliverer. But Lord, embolden us. Give us a courage to be strong, to take heart, to be bold. See the victory that you will supply. Lord, we want to exalt in you like David has. But we also want to realize that there is more. That we want to see you, not just what you can do, 
not just what you give. So, Lord, I ask that you move our hearts to you, that we, in that process, see ourselves and therefore see starkly your grace in loving us and sending your Son to die for us so that we can indeed behold your face and gaze on your beauty. Lord, use this passage this week. Keep coming back to us with it. Keep telling our hearts to seek your face. May we be dissatisfied with everything else, even the Christian life, to the degree that it doesn't include gazing into your eyes. Lord, we want you to accomplish this, and we know this is your desire even beyond ours. We worship you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.